Hello, happy Sunday, and welcome to this episode of Reel It In. I'm Dan Sapin, and I'm here with my buddies... Martin Holberg, currently repping the high coast of northern Sweden. Cool. Joe Messina, still repping Boston. <laughs> We're repping? How long have I been repping, and why didn't anybody tell me? Tonight we're repping. Am I I qualified? You're the rapper. Known to to rep. I'm the rapper. And the rapper. I'll take it. Um, We are here today to talk about dreaming and why it's such a big deal for us. And uh, what I'm going to do, since I've tried to talk about this idea uh, a number of times, but um, it always comes up a little more awkwardly than this text I wrote to my buddy the other day, Uh, so I'm going to read it to you. I've been filled with thoughts about how the human psyche, as seen from one outside perspective, is obsessed with its dreaming and its dreams. Dreams, per se, the life of imagining, even the fact that there is this peculiar constant creation and commentary of alternate realities these multimodal representations. We're dreaming them involuntarily. Uh, We dream them at night. Uh, We're haunted by those dreams. We interpret those dreams. We tell variations on reality as if they're objective accounts, partly because our memory constantly jams and improvises on every bit of material that comes through our minds, and partly because we never remember things precisely as they happened. We're always overwriting and rewriting our memories based on the last time we remembered them and whatever happened since then. Um, We write those realities so as to induce dreams or as, uh, you know, some of our favorite psychoanalytic thinkers, Mike Eigen, Wilfred Bion in particular, uh, call them hallucinations. We write those realities so as to induce dream hallucinations in others. We configure the language specially so as to inspire idea, sense, metaphor, hallucinations uh, of conditions, situations we may have never experienced, or which point to a way beyond our own capacity for experience. We go places to have and experience alongside other people those hallucinations. We go back to revisit the ones we enjoyed or which fascinated us in some way, you know, movies, shows reruns of Welcome Back, Cotter, whatever it happens to be. Uh, We create music to induce the shifting play of emotions and the sensual responses that grabbed us for the sheer love of the patterns, the feeling of it, for the synchronization of aspects of ourselves with the patterns that we get from other people. Think of a soundtrack to a movie. Think of the music itself and why we go to a certain song at a certain time, why one of those songs can't get out of our heads. Um, it's not just music. That piece of music is the whole map, the whole contour of the emotions and the thoughts we had. Um, so that's a dream also. It's a musical dream. Um, and so on. I mean, we're all about the dreams. We have powerful philosophies concerned with the character of experience. And these particular, these peculiar things we call beautiful or beauty itself, which we also associate with strength, simplicity, complexity, touch, the feeling, the sensual quality of things, 
Even our science and our math are formulated and judged in many respects by the stories they tell, the formal patterns uh, that uh, define them. And whether they're elegant, that's the other thing that came to mind, that, that scientists like to talk about equations and theories in terms of whether they're beautiful, whether they're elegant, uh, whether they describe and predict the contour of experience or the contour of life, the phenomenon they're trying to describe, or a world beyond experience, but we're trying to find words to give a feeling for this thing which isn't captured in words. Um, philosophers like Alfred North Whitehead, who had said that every idea has its feeling, uh, almost a flavor. You know, when an idea excites you, it doesn't just bring up a feeling in you. It has almost a taste or a scent to it that you want to come back to. Um, we are <laughs> the dreamers. I had this idea that um, if some alien anthropologists, they wouldn't be called anthropologists because they don't know about us yet, uh, but they've been coming to study us and they report back to the Institute for, uh, you know, who the hell are those guys on that other planet? And they're asked, well, what's up with this species? What's their thing? Um, and the alien anthropologist says, I don't know, these people are obsessed with their dreams. And maybe he has to explain what a dream is, you know, this weird way we have of thinking when we're asleep. Or maybe it's understood that sentient creatures dream. But what he reports is these people don't stop. They dream at night, and they wake up and they think about their dreams. They get really anxious because their dreams fade away and they can't hold on to them. But then they try to remember them, and then they tell them. And then they tell variations on them. And then they have their psychologists... Jungian analysts who say, dream it forward, amplify it, keep dreaming it. And they keep thinking about it. And then maybe they write it in their journal. And then maybe they write a story about it. And then maybe they get hundreds of millions of dollars and make an alternate reality out of it that people all over the world are going to go and watch. These people do not stop dreaming. Everything they do, all their cultures, we are the dreamers, and this also comes to me, well, as I'm saying it, I'm thinking Willy Wonka. We are the dreamers, we are the, somebody else knows this quote properly. It's also my favorite band, Echolin, um, that has a snippet of that on their first album. Um, it comes from Wilfred Beyond, it comes from T.S. Eliot, Wallace Stevens, my favorite poet, said things about it, but that idea that maybe more than any other quality or activity, we dream. And I thought it would be cool to talk about that. Nice. We are the dreamers. Yeah, we are the cool. dreamers. Hello. My pops just walked in here. Hello, um, Mr. Hallberg. Yeah, he's up there. They're there for dinner. What's up? Okay, yeah, yeah, we're going downtown. All right. Yeah, it's just passing, passing through here. Um, it's quite a dazzling account, man. It's a, it's a nice story. I really like the, the tagline also, like, we are the dreamers. It's like a, like a belly hit somehow. It's just like, we want to land in that. 
Um, Somewhere in Galaxy M87, there are people talking about, did you read this article on the dreamers on that planet? Yeah, yeah that's them. That's us. Yeah. No, I have about us. Yeah. And also the musical dream is nice. I actually dreamt the other night, like two nights ago, I dreamt that I was performing a musical concert, which is weird because I don't play an instrument. I've never had that dream in my entire life. I think I was playing the piano or something. Like I was alone in this circular uh, stage and there's like people around me and I was like composing something uh, on a kind of piano-like instrument. It's a very interesting dream, except I don't play. Like I've never had that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of associations to this, the image, the screen, the pictogram, the visual representation. Um, I think there is a, there's a few different ways that I'd, that I'd go with this. Like one of them would be, like you said, in terms of beyond and, and dream work, you know, not the act of physically sleeping at night, even though that's the most apparent one, but in terms of dream work as metabolizing everyday residuals, you know, congesting, digesting fragments into something representable. Uh, and that's a kind of healing work that can be done while sleeping, but also meditation or contemplation or, or reflective states, reverie, as he talks about, you know, the mother holding her little infant and allowing the infant to scream and shout and just holding it for him and letting things be the way they are. So that's kind of one avenue I see. Yeah, a different one would be this more... Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a, um, I was thinking also of this um, controlled hallucinations that you were touching on, the, how we as a human species always create maps of what's going to happen to us. You know, we are like encoding machines that test our predictions to reality. Uh, we might think that we experience the objective reality exactly as it is, but there's always that slight little distortion uh, fueled by subject subjective kind of encounter with the world. And based on our experience, one can look at the brain as that kind of more of an economical model of the brain, I guess, like more Freudian, where you, where you look at homeostasis, like the body's uh, quest for maintaining a good balance of need satisfaction. And the way to do that is through predictions. If I do this, I'll get food. If I do this, I'll get uh, int intimacy. If I do this, I'll get care, you know, whatever the needs are. But then that dissonance between your prediction and the world's response is constantly updated. And I think the image and the screen plays an important role in that how you assess a milieu when you come into a room, you know, that's instantaneous, in how do you say, instantaneous, like boom. Mm -hmm. the, sensory, the sensory perception of your body relates quickly to the visual top-down kind of encoding, and boom, you have that kind of idea, this is what I'm supposed to do. And then you do that, and it shit doesn't work. And you're like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble now. So you need to update that prediction. And I think there's a bunch of people who talk about this in terms of inference and predictions, predictive coding, homeostasis, that's kind of the neuroscience, the cognitive neuroscience group. So that's one path. And then the third one, like you alluded to, would be symbols, myth, uh, the archaic element of the pictogram, you know, the archaic element of, of images 
pre predestining us. How do you say predestinate before us? You know, mm -hmm. like a prehistoric kind of image. And there's a very interesting French psychoanalyst called Olanier. I don't know if you guys have heard of her, but she was quite famous in France, but I don't think she ever became famous outside of France. Huh. Pierre Olanier or something. I know She's some of the cool. French. That was, you know, Didier Anzieux. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. But La I don't know her. No, um, she's not that known, but she was formidable. And she had a very interesting account of what she called emotional pictograms. And her theory of this is that the, you know, normally we do this separation between primary process and secondary process. We've talked about this in a previous episode. But Olanier says that there's something even before the primary process, which is like a prehistoric primordial element where, where the, the infant is not yet aware of his or her own subjectivity. So he's merged with the mother and he gets a representation of himself and the image at the same time, you know, sucking the titty or the thumb or whatever. So the body and the erogenous zones get coupled with an emotional memory before, before individuation, before separation. And that is even deeper than the primary process, because primary process is usually associated to fantasy, wishful thinking, delusion. But this thing here would be even under that. So it's a kind of primordial uh, condition of something terrible, I guess, because everything is one and the same. There is no awareness of being a separate subject. And maybe Which that comes from frustration, doesn't it? I guess that when so. there's a difference, yeah. as you said, between yeah. what yeah. emerged and what I got, yeah, some function has to kick into gear. Um, yeah, that and I think that I gap. think uh, I think Hillman and Jung and maybe some of that mythological track would be somehow maybe related to that archaic um, primordial pattern of, of pictograms as somehow relaying something to us that we we don't we know that we don't know it still it feels like we know it you know yeah. something of an echo or something like that yeah something came to mind though and uh, about your definition of fantasy which mm. i think you is is a good um uh account of a more freudian perspective um i also think of what Jung and, in a different sense, Melanie Klein did with fantasy, that if you think of fantasy, uh, which they spell P-H-A-N-T-A-S-Y, um, that one key difference between the other uh, psychoanalytic traditions and Freud's is the idea that um, the frustration, the bodily wish, uh, is not necessarily the engine of fantasy, but that fantasy is rather the constant and automatic depiction of the state of the being at that moment, that the mind yeah. is going to have a sort of background feed, in a way, of yeah. images, and that those images start to take a certain kind of form when you're pissed off, when you're hungry, when the uh -huh. world is not yeah. satisfying. Yeah. And um, so you have a couple of approaches here. One is... Do we create art um, as a more sophisticated way of doing what an infant does? Namely, I'm hungry. I got no titty, so I'm going to think of one. Uh, um, paint one. Yeah. I'm going to paint one, or I'm going to make a movie. Titty. 
and maybe it's a porno and maybe it's Bergman. Uh, but either way, does the creativity come out of a state of frustration or rather does it come out of that awesome ability we have to conjure alternate worlds in which we yeah. have what we want or at least get to tell the story about being frustrated? Yeah, I guess we, in the second one, we're more the creators. I mean, I, I link that more to that kind of Bionian approach uh, in a way. I guess beyond in that sense represents in this discussion to me more of the subjective, like the individual as a subject, whereas the Freudian economical model will look more at drives. Like, what do you need? I'm, you know, you have a certain amount of monies and you need to buy certain things. You know, it's like transactional view of the organism. Whereas the Bionian is closer to aesthetics and subjective uh, creativity. Like you said, you kind of mold your own place in the world through this kind of dream work, like being embedded, you know, link between the unconscious and the conscious. That's like a constant creative process through life. So I guess they're quite different in that sense, maybe. I'm not sure. Well, they tell different parts of the story. And I think oh. one of the things you bring up the aesthetic, which is not only about beauty, of course, uh, it's not even in the uh, root of the word. It doesn't have anything to do with beauty, but the, the quality of the experience. Um, one thing that the Freudian tradition doesn't really have anything coherent uh, to speak about is, well, what about beauty? What about that richness of feeling that is not I agree. about um, uh, drive satisfaction? Drive satisfaction, and well, Freud did suggest sublimation, um, in which through art and science, the uh, nasty urges are cleansed. But um, as with a few more ambitious attempts of Freud's to get beyond his own metapsychology. Um, Sublimation, which was you take something raw and you cook it, you make it better, you make it digestible, but you make it higher, redemptive. You make art or science out of, you know, an urge to be smarter than your dad, uh, which in itself was a way, an alternate to killing him in the Oedipus complex because yeah. you're not supposed to. Um, but there's sublimation and then there is eros which is another one of those examples where Freud decided to use an ancient mythological character to describe something he didn't otherwise choose to describe scientifically. And whenever Freud did that, he tended to just sort of peter out because he couldn't deal with, among other things, he couldn't deal with the concept of beauty. Um, he couldn't reduce it. Sublimation and Eros are all about getting somewhere else about something higher, about something yeah. divorced from the drives and the frustrations. Yeah. And so in a way, that's one of the things that set the stage for everybody who came after Freud. Because, well, you know, I'm sure that uh, Hippocrates was a decent physician for his time, but he needed a few thousand years worth of uh, more doctors to figure out the stuff he couldn't do himself. So, um, cool, look at that. We've got, <laughs> we, we've already got the two forks of the tradition there, the Freudian and the Kleinian, Bionian, Jungian. And there's more to be said out of that. But drive satisfaction, frustration, and beauty 
And maybe maybe there's there's a triple fork. What do you call it? Like a three, like the Poseidon fork. A trident. A trident. Yeah, it's a trident because I'm I'm quite interested, even though I don't know so much about it. I'm quite interested in that cognitive neuroscience computational model of the mind, where where the image and the picture and the the dream is just seen as a as a kind of instrument in the coding the, the Bayesian brain. Have you heard this term? There is a term of the Bayesian brain. B a y e s i a. Yeah. Yeah. Remind me. B a y. I think it just looks at the brain as a computer, more or less. You know, like like a a constant, um, you know, sending out stuff, receiving stuff, matching the 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 mismatch, and you have the the up the bottom up process, which is like sensory to to cortex, and then you have the top down which would include the kind of abstract thinking, the concepts, the image that goes down. And this whole machine just flows day in and day out. So in that perspective, um, the kind of hallucination is nothing, nothing but how we all live, basically. In that sense, you know, shooting out your, your, your view of things and receiving um, the, the feedback from the world, updating your image, that's what we do. And it takes a lot of mental capacity. So it's an expensive way to live. That's why we need to nap. We need to sleep well. We need to work out. We need to eat properly. Because that fucking, the brain in that context is there to keep us alive. In this model, the brain's job is to keep us alive and to, to make demands on the body what the body needs to do. So the brain controls the body through controlled hallucinations that are like 99.5% accurate but that always needs kind of revision. So that would be, I guess, the third kind of uh, thing on the fork. You would have the Freudian drive model in the middle. You would have the Bionian subjective um, kind of dream work as a, as a subjective conglomerate of, of emotional experience on one side. And then you have the computer model of the, the neuroscientists on the right-hand side. We can kill anybody with that trident. Oh, yeah, and there's room for more more pointy parts. Yeah. Um, but there's uh, one more piece here uh, between the Freudian and the other than Freudian. Of course, the you know Freud's uh, main uh, definition of the the purpose of a dream is to keep us asleep. We dream so that we will not be disturbed, awakened by those emergences of the drives. And frustrations, which well, they would wake us up, and we'd be crabby the next day and for the rest of our lives. Um, but Beyond had this beautiful way of preserving and extending Freud by turning him inside out. Mm. And one of the best examples of that was the way in which Beyond defined uh, dreaming as the process by which it becomes possible for us to wake up at all. That uh, there is yeah. no consciousness, there is no reflection, there is no subject at all without the dreaming that enables us to have a thought mm -hmm. and to witness ourselves thinking and to think about the process of thinking and to desire coherence and beauty and satisfy unmet needs through the thought alone, through the image alone. So one idea of being a dreamer is here, uh, 
must be that in some way there is a profound relationship between the fact that we're obsessed with dreams and the fact that we are awake and sentient and able to have um, dialogues like this one. Mm. Yeah. Alpha function. Take all of those bodily noises, turbulences, as Beyond says, um, and turn them into something that can be thought about and then something that can yeah. conduct. Did he say thoughts. something like uh, giving thoughts a thinker, right? The thoughts without a thinker. Yeah, and, and what you said, like through the dreaming, the thoughts will get a thinker. You create the thinker by being able to dream. You know, the person who can dream suddenly has a perspective to his dreams. There is somebody who can, who have thought the thoughts that, that were digested in the dream. Whereas a person who's awake all the time, he doesn't have that thinker. He is uh, psychotic, basically. And in that model, Martin, say something more about psychosis because we already use the word hallucination yeah. and um, anybody who is not uh, familiar and comfortable with the language of Bion and Michael Eigen who you know is the 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 emissary for uh, many of us uh, for yeah. the works the thinks the thinking of, of Bion um, how do you understand the meaning of hallucination and why that word was chosen, given all the baggage it has. In in what context? You mean in in because in, in the neuroscientific model, they they use hallucination in a perfectly normal setting. They use it just to to infer that we are seeing something that is not actually true. And that, what I'm and, you talking know, about, yeah, for psychodynamics, though, you know, how, we have a word yeah, that's yeah. associated with malfunction. Yeah. No. In that context, I guess I would. You know, I'm not an expert in that field at all, but the way I understand it is more towards that kind of Bionian Eigen approach where that kind of contact barrier breaks down. I guess one one way of explaining a psychotic person would be to say that he or she cannot dream. There is no container in which the thoughts can become metabolized. So everything is evacuated and projected onto the external reality. So the psychotic patient would need help to bring back what, what he or she continuously evacu evacuates, projects, uh, projects, you know, through projective identification, that the person persecuting you becomes uh, an object in the real world. So the hallucination in this sense is a pathological and severe uh, condition, right? You see, see things that are not there because it's your internal state that has been thrown out like a pizza on the on the real world. So what you are visually seeing is your internal creatures. So if that person was able to dream uh, reverie, if there was a container, an internal container that would able to digest these thoughts, bind them together, the outer objects would become internal again. And then that person would see there's trees out there, there's an ocean, there is beautiful nature. There is no persecutory gang members trying to shoot me. Uh, so that would be my rudimentary understanding of psychosis in, in this context. And by making it possible for, well, use the, a patient or an alisand, 
here by making it possible for a psychotic patient to know the difference between what is inner and what is outer. Yeah. Um, you make it possible for him to work on that inner experience because exactly. it's now not a quality of the world. Yeah. It is not a world full of, of frightening things, of things yeah. that come and go unbidden. Uh, there is a basic understanding of what comes from me and what is out there. Yeah. And that's a precondition for analysis. But then, if we are the dreamers and there is a non-pathological... Oh, by the way, I want to say that the idea of the hallucination also does go all the way back to Freud and pre-Freud, but we won't go there at the moment, uh, that the absent breast uh, mm. is yeah. hallucinated. More to be said about that. But if we are going to talk about uh, the humans of this epoch, you know, these few tens of thousands of years, um, as the, the age of the dreamers, and there is, this has nothing fundamentally to do with psychosis or sickness of any kind, then what is this non-pathological use of the word hallucination? This constant evoking and invoking and provoking of um, an imagining of worlds, versions of worlds, which are alternative, that are, which are alternates to the one we objectively find ourselves in. Yeah, that, that's 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 a big that's a big question. Um, and why beauty? Yeah, I'm gonna have to digest this. I, I got stuck a little bit on those contact points. I think it's an important, you know, element that the there is one kind of contact barrier that Beyond talks about the internal contact barrier, and then there is that outer bodily membrane between you and the world. So I think there's levels of those contact points that are always breathing to some extent. They're oscillatory, you know, that they're not, they can let things out, but they can also let things in, right? Both internally, psychically, and vis-a-vis -vis an object or the, the world. So there is that kind of breathing pattern that, that permeates us, I think, is a word that that's fits for me in this context. You know, the, those, those membranes allow us to, to change and be changed by our surroundings. Um, so I, I got stuck a little bit there. Um, I'm not, I don't really know how, how the word hallucinations would fit into this kind of um, context that you're describing now of thinking the new world. Um, other, yeah, maybe as a creative impulse, you know, as a, as a um, aesthetic drive, like you were saying before, of, of reaching beyond or, or ascending above the Freudian drive satisfaction. I definitely agree to that, that there is something inherent in us that strives for, let's say, harmony or, or melody or um, union or, I don't know, like eros, uh, something to that effect that, that goes beyond um, object relations. And I guess art, poetry for me is, is one vehicle for that, for sure. Uh, music is one for many people, I guess. Um, and there's a whole other idea, S musical, acoustic mm. images, acoustic hallucination. Yeah. But I want to throw something in here because clearly, I mean, we the, the word hallucination has been uh, stretched um, maybe to its breaking point 
um, and, well, look up the etymology. Um, there is, first, in the online etymology dictionary, um, the Latin hallucinatus, uh, which then turned into hallucinatus, um, which is the past participle of hallucinari, uh, is to have illusions, which derives from to wander in the mind, to mentally wander, to dream, but also to talk unreasonably, to ramble in thought. Gosh, it's one big mass hallucination. Um, to wander in mind, there's the Greek alien, as in hallucination alien, alien, uh, to wander in mind, to be at a loss, to be beside oneself. Now, I, you know I love words and the way they come together, the, their meeting points. You also have the Greek ecstasy, uh. which means to stand outside oneself, to be beside oneself. However, the Greek halien, halien, means also to be beside oneself with grief, joy, or perplexity. So you have two closely related words with very different implications. Um, because you, ha you have ecstasy, which we associate with profound pleasure, something exemplified by an orgasm, but there are spiritual ecstasies. There are other kinds of sensual, uh, even intellectual ecstasies, ideas that blow you away, that fragment you, and you know, uh, make you land someplace uh, other than where you're standing. Um, so, yeah, but like you said, food, wine, music, those are also concrete, small tangents of this. You know, you eat some delicious food, you can start tearing up almost. You know, yep. and it's that kind of dialogue between things outside of oneself almost. Like, uh, why am I crying? I don't understand. It's just veal, or, you know, I ate today. Uh, why trout. am I crying? It's just veal. Yeah. I ate today trout that is, is quite cute. There's people here in the summer house neighborhood they, that have fished by themselves with a net. And there's like a five year old girl and her dad who sold like for $6, like smoked the sea trout that they have caught in the net. So we bought one of those and had it with some potatoes and rose wine. And it was, it's beautiful. I mean, it's so good. And it's really that kind of thing where something just hits me that's kind of beyond any cognitive representation. It's like, fuck, it's so, it's so good, you know? It's just I like, would like to, I really would like you guys and, and our, our, our millions of listeners and viewers to come away with something from this show. So I, I, just want to, I just want to add, you're in a good restaurant, the chef comes out himself or herself to ask you, how's the trout? Don't describe it as cute. Yeah. <laughs> no, You'll it was, get hurt. Yeah, it was more the the girl and her father that were that was a cute little thing in in the neighborhood here. It's not that very often that people do that anymore. You know, you fish the fish and then you put it on a little plastic table and you sell it to the bystanders. Oh yeah, uh, I thought that was cute. But uh, those sensations anyway, like the food, music, wine. I guess there's, I guess sex is a little bit different. At least in my book, it hits a broader register of of sensations maybe but but those kind of what would what would one call them like food and wine what are they are they like taste orgasms or what are they well yeah um those are 
gustatory olfactory hallucinations you could say ecstasies but one of the things you're saying here is that any of the call them primal primitive functions the things that we need to live um, our food um, you know our procreation our, our pleasure in the bodies of ourselves and others um, we can elevate them to a, to an art and in a way you can say the, the the sublimated aspects of our culture are essentially taking the basics the bottle or in many cases the bodily basics cuisine uh, good sex Kama Sutra uh, whatever you figure out on your own um, you take something that would work just as well if it gave you the nutrients you wanted uh, delivered the gametes to uh, to your mate you didn't have to spend all that time bringing ecstasy but you can yeah. it's a good idea is there so a connection what, here with the erotic well the yeah. erotic as a kind of profound you know like the erotic dimension of life, like the erotic as part of culture or political programs or or organization of things, you know, where the erotic is allowed space as constitutive power. Um, Absolutely. Um, there, it depends to some extent on what angle on Eros you want. I mean, the one I, I gravitate towards is mm. the erotic is the instinct or the, that, that dimension of, uh, of psychic life and spiritual life that always aims beyond itself, that aims to make more connections. Mm. Um, this is part yeah, exactly. from, yeah, yeah. from Freud himself, yeah. but... Mm. Um, you know, no, for sure. That's 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 kind of the 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 main view of eros that I was going with as well. When we're talking about like patterns and union and and kind of beauty uh, and those things. But now I just started to think of a different. That's why I say erotic rather than eros. Like erotic as something more linked to, you know, Dionysian. I don't know, sexual, sensual, um, getting lost in eroticism. Um, Bataille has written about this, I think, uh, at some point. Um, I don't know too much about it, but I don't think they're, they're meaning the, the unifying eros in that sense. I think I'm after something more... Uh, um, I can't find the right word. I would probably have to look this up. I don't really know what I'm talking about. It was just a, just a shoot. Um, no, I think it's a good a culture, You know, a culture that allows for the erotic... We're talking about something else than Eros in its standard view. Well, like, think, you mentioned Dionysus, okay? Yeah. And so do you, did you ever read or read about the Bacchae? Yeah. The, the Bacchae? Yeah. Do you remember, uh, well, there are a few uh, sort of helpful points to take from that, but what do you remember about the Bacchae? But that's the drinking party, right? Bacchus, when they celebrate the... The Bacchanal, right? Yeah, isn't the guy with the horns or the... Oh, he's got many... He, he does a whole cosplay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> cosplay. There, yeah. There's... Uh, Greek, the Greek gods were 
knew how to play. They could party. But one important takeaway from the Bacchae was that um, if you don't give Dionysus his due, yeah. uh, if you don't worship him, mm-hmm. and by worship I mean party, party, yeah. um, sex, drugs, and what would eventually become yeah. rock and roll, uh, his minions, the Bacchae, they're gonna tear you it's up. Minions. You. Yeah. Yep. They're gonna fuck you up. <laughs> they're gonna fuck you up. Uh, yeah. because one of the things that arguably was known implicitly to the people, and was this Sophocles, Euripides, uh, his tailor, Eumenides. Uh, yeah. Um knew <laughs> was that if I was channeling my father, miss you, Dad, um, that if you don't take care of that part of your nature, mm-hmm. well, yeah, luck. yeah, this is more a little bit of what I was touching, I guess, something to that, um, to that effect. But to be honest, I don't know, it was just a tangent that I went off. It just, I just wanted to probe it. Uh, that's what we're here for. But maybe tangents. ask maybe maybe ask Joe what we've been doing now for Joe, for you're here. Forty minutes. Yeah. That's a good question. I I uh, to be perfectly honest, am am having a hard time following. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good assessment of. No I, shame in that. I think yeah. that is at the very least as much on me as <laughs> if it is on you guys at all. Well, look, no, 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 no. This is a pretty niche. Uh, subject. This is a whole literature. Um, but I have a feeling that in here as a musician and a comic and a political commentator and all of that, you got plenty to say about the experience of impulse and entertainment and satisfaction and self-deprivation and um, pleasure what we kind of owe to the gods, the gods of wine, sex. <laughs> I got to plug in my computer. Yeah, maybe you're, just, we... you're just killing time, aren't you? <laughs> um, so the impulse to entertain. Um, yeah, I mean, well, that's a, I mean, that's one thing that uh, I could sort of latch onto here is like, the um, uh, comedy world is very, it's very much about like self-sacrifice and self, like self-deprecation is the term, is like the, if, if there are technical terms like what comedians do, that's like the, the onstage version is self-deprecation. Like you're making jokes about yourself. Um, but I would But say- if all it was was self-deprecation, there'd be no show. Right. Well, yeah. Because what? Well, what I'm saying is that, like, I I was about to say self-flagellation, and and then was reminded of self-deprecation. But yeah, that's what it. Because like, um, you know, we've talked a little about this before. How uh, there is to an extent, there's a lot you can gain from struggle. Um, but I do think there's a fine line between that and, uh, you know glorifying struggle uh and that's something that i see with i mean i think it's it's all parts of our society because of capitalism but 
uh, comedians, art, art, artists in general, but like comedians and, and musicians are where I see it, where like people kind of torture themselves to, <laughs> um, to like to be in this world. Um, especially in comedy where I think the paid, uh, the paid work is much, you know, it's, it's very few and far between. Um, and so you just have a, a whole, uh, uh, just, just massive amounts of people just <laughs> dedicating their entire lives to, um, this thing that exhausts them and is not very good to them. In, Why? what's the payoff well i think the perceived payoff or like the the sort of implicitly promised payoff is success that like oh you will if you keep at it and you're funny then like you you will become a headliner and you will tour the the country and the world and you will be you know in movies and and on TV and all this stuff, and you'll you'll get all sorts of money. Hey Joe, can I tell you that that you said that I think actually better than Freud did. <laughs> I'm gonna give you a quote here. Um, thanks thanks to me. Was, I'm reading my own book here. Um, I do this thing about how Freud uh, was um, conflicted about artists, poets, musicians. Um, which he explicitly says because uh, you know scientists like me, we have to just just sort of stare at the lock on the gate of the woman's heart and try to figure out a way to get in. But the poet, he just knows with a little twist of words how to get in. And Freud meant exactly what he's implying there. What he wrote is honor, power, wealth, fame, and the love of women are the objects of the artist's desire. But he lacks the means for achieving these satisfactions. Consequently, like any other man, he turns away from the reality to the wishful constructions of his life of fantasy, whence the path might lead to neurosis. Killjoy. But <laughs> one of the things he's also saying here is that the artist, um, particularly um, for him, the poet, but you're talking about the singer-songwriter, the guy at the party with the guitar who always goes home with somebody, um, whether he's good or not, somehow that alone... Um, unlocks the lock. Uh, that's the comedian too. That's the <laughs> artist who is able to turn those fantasies uh, to his own advantage, partly by making pain enjoyable to the audience. Right. Yeah, you nailed it with that one. I think so, too. I think it's a way of living in the world. I mean, I don't know. I've never done stand-up comedy. I haven't watched much, but I, I see it as a very, very challenging thing to do. So for the people to do that, I guess there would need to be more driving forces than the than the vague promise of one day maybe becoming famous. I, I assume, you know, that there there is there is a path of a way to be oneself, maybe. You know, this is a way I can live. This is a way I can utilize my experiences my my views my quirks things i'm good at you know nobody there's no no job that hire me i'll create my own job uh, something to that uh, which is admirable i think yeah yeah i mean um 
yeah, I think that's the that's the impulse. Uh, but I think people lose sight of um, how often it doesn't it just doesn't work out that way, and how many people are you know working another job or jobs. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, exactly. Will like torture themselves for years trying to do the other thing too. Uh, yeah. That was me. I've, I've always had like multiple jobs and tried to do that. And now I'm finding that I'm uh, I'm uh, perfectly happy and probably more happy not doing it. Um, yeah. And yeah, I don't know. I th I think uh, like I I see I do think that um, yeah, like the, there's truth to that that Freud quote broadly when it comes to artists. But I also think that um, the the society we live in crushes that. <laughs> that possibility for so many people um, yeah. whereas you know there are plenty of places you know now and in the past where uh people just did these things and and yeah if you have more money or you know you have more access um to it but uh it it's it's just um yeah i think there there's there's not uh yeah that opportunity doesn't exist for for most people i would say <laughs> um and it's interesting what like i've i came across some uh you know I, I mean i guess like soviet propaganda type stuff um on youtube from you know the cold war era i mean that's when the soviet union existed but uh it was about there were a couple of videos about art and and artists and how um the the u.s treats uh art and how it treats its people in general and you know it, it's arguable how how well people were treated in the soviet union i'm sure it's a mixed bag like anything else but um i think that it's interesting seeing like the criticisms made by other societies um it, well you're one of the things i think that that since you, you've had this really interesting line of thought about this sort of idealized socialism you know thanks to star trek um but <laughs> the capitalist critique is an important one and now we're it's not just a capitalist critique but one seen through the eye of social media in which you know, it's no longer about, you know, you got to go drive 14 miles to go to the club where the comedian is. You got everybody in the world who thinks they're funny, saturating the market, so to speak. And the whole everywhere is the marketplace um, so that it's very difficult to get your voice heard, uh, you know, assuming you even have one and perhaps especially if you have one. Uh, because part of that contemporary capitalist uh, art market is that the cheaper, the quicker, the nastier, the more sensationalist you can make something, well, the more attention you're going to get. Look at it, look, look at who makes the most money and gets the most influence. Uh, you're talking about YouTube influencers who, uh, what, electrocute rats and go film, you know, suicide bodies. Uh, you know, the Paul brothers do this and manage to get in the ring with Floyd Mayweather. Well, you know, we've got 
good professional fighters around the corner here who can make 500 bucks uh, twice a year for doing a little club show because unfortunately they're good at what they do and there's no market for that. Right. You know, um, I want to make another connection to comedy here, which also uh, goes to other, other performance. Um, Freud's own quote here was that the scientist knows that artists, here's the quote, possess in their art a master key to open with ease all female hearts. Yeah, right. Whereas we stand helpless, we scientists and regular folks stand helpless at the strange design of the lock and have first to torment ourselves to discover a suitable key to it. Um, yet, I found uh, another spot in which Freud also calls himself not merely a thinker, but a conquistador, that his thing was to conquer the, um, the mysteries of the mind. Uh, Unmapped territories. The, exactly. Now think of this. Um, the conquistador conquers and kills. What does a comedian do? He kills or he dies. <laughs> yeah. So in a way, here is a survival paradigm. Mm. A survival and uh, conquer uh, and kill paradigm. Something primal, uh, you know, that's the jungle. Even when you're talking about, you know, comedy seller. Yeah. Yeah, That I mean, that's something I can relate to um is there's there's um you know again as much as like uh i relate all of this stuff to socialism and capitalism like i think stand-up comedy is an incredibly capitalist uh art form it's one person like you know being the the master of everything in their little domain and it is um it's all about like the individual and uh you know there there is yeah there's this like conqueror's mindset that's how we talk about that stuff in comedy and um there's you know the the feeling you get when you like kill a crowd <laughs> like it is like this wild you know um it feels like a very ancient thing like you can you can sort of tell like oh i see how like you know mass murderers like genghis khan or whatever existed like <laughs> that's there is they weren't funny right <laughs> they had to actually kill right um yeah i mean it's it's like as much as like sports are kind of or even you know politics itself are kind of stand-ins for war mm. uh there is that element in in um maybe in all our forms to some degree but uh in all endeavors to some degree but uh, but certainly stand up comedy and that's that's one thing i find uh uh about it that's very entrenched in the the capitalist mindset yeah well, that that Freudian that Freudian quote of like the the separation between the artist and the scientist. I mean, it's um, yeah, it's a little bit. I was about to say unfortunate, but maybe that's not the right word. But it brings back to that very well-known kind of dichotomy, I guess, between the idea world, you know, like Plato and and Pythagoras and the the harmony of ideas and idealistic uh, 
utopian, you know, one could go on with like associations from that bulk versus then the kind of objective, cold, physical reality of the scientist that deals with the interactions of matter uh, and, and pure kind of elementary particles uh, bouncing on and off each other in different constellations. And I think maybe there's that complementarity principle that's, that's useful sometimes, you know, of, of, of not fighting too hard, of trying to bridge the two where they can't maybe be bridged, but, but recognizing that they're both valid, just not simultaneously. You know, you could like that thing, you, you can listen to the harmony or the melody of a tune, but you can't maybe hear both at the same time. Or maybe some people can, I don't know. But, but you understand what I'm, where I'm getting with that, that there is that kind of complementarity idea that, that, you know, these things are there, but depending on where we stand, we can be immersed in a more aesthetic dimension of viewing things, or yeah. we can go and stand in a more kind of Freudian scientist paradigm, and they all kind of add up from, from within, but, but it's hard to encompass it all in one kind of clear clear view yeah that, that's an interesting point because i think i mean you know so well i meant to say before the the, the way freud put that was is obviously very dated uh in, in terms of you know the what, what was it conquering the woman's heart or whatever like that's a, it's a little insane not not the least of which because obviously women can be artists and and anything else too um but uh yeah i mean but that's an interesting point you just made there because um there there i i think for a long time was a lack of um uh science in pop culture and it could be that you know they those things obviously like more often stand on their own like you're saying um but then i think there's there's uh something interesting that happens when you have all these very popular like science communicator guys like um uh, Carl Sagan was maybe like mm. the, the uh, first bit really big ones of like the modern era. And, uh, and then like, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson has sort of a mixed reputation right now, but him too. And Bill Nye and uh, uh, Michio Kaku. And like, um, that's a really interesting phenomenon. Cause I don't know if that was ever really, um, a, you know, a, a, job like that was that was not really like a role in public life before i mean the cosmologist entertainer yeah <laughs> um it was really interesting how what what key does he have to the lock i reckon it's quite yeah. good well you know just imagine uh you know walking up to a chick in a bar and say hey, honey I'm let me cosmology. describe a black hole for you <laughs> <laughs> Um, you away. and me, baby, It'd be like the meeting of two neutron stars. Oh, the gravity waves will be picked up all over the universe. That's terrible. Doesn't work. Tried it. Um, but yeah, that's really interesting because I think, um, you know, my generation grew up watching Bill Nye, and so it's sort of normal to us. And he's like, you know, he was a comedian. He was on some like public access sketch comedy show before he did Bill Nye the Science Guy. Uh, but he's an educated scientist and and uh but he's also he's a funny guy who knows how to present stuff. And um uh the but the the one that I think Carl Sagan really stands out because 
there is such a like poetry to his um his yeah. the way he describes these things and why they're important and you know neil degrasse tyson was a direct uh you know mentee of of his um and does a similar thing uh but yeah if you watch cosmos like either the carl sagan or the new one with neil degrasse tyson like that's that's what it is it's like po poeticizing science yeah I mean, it is, it is billions and billions of stars have been <laughs> caught up in the Harvey Weinstein scandal. I'm sorry, go on. No, but I think, uh, yeah, I just finished a book by Frank Wilczek, who's a physicist and writes some of this stuff. Fundamentals. So was, yeah. So I was inspired by that. And on the ending passages, I don't have the quotes here now because the book is in the other house down there, but it was kind of this, you know, physicalism to where we're all kind of everything is made of the same stuff you know there's like four or five elementary particles and they all obey the three different like spin and charge and mass or something like this so everything comes from the same kind of stuff but but the kind of artistic consequences of this or the, the more poetic elaborations of these insights can be deeply moving you know in terms of, of how we are participating in the world we create and how these membranes and contact points within us and between us are also made up of the same same matter as everything else. So that it can lead to that sense of awe. You know, Einstein, I guess, was a good proponent of that, of a hardcore scientist that was really imbued by this artistic or this kind of um, poetic sentiment, right, in, in everything he wrote. So there is that way of, of being in touch with both of those drives in a better way than Freud was able to do. Using uh, beauty think. and yeah. elegance to bring these ideas yeah. to people. Yeah. yeah, without refuting the fundamental scientific loss of, of, of the governs it all. Um, yeah. But, you know, so. the, can I get to, because um, I think this is a beautiful bridge to something I think Joe, you're in a position to say something about it. So I think the, the, the capitalist critique here um, has a lot of relevance. If everything in the physical universe amounts to, well, you know, we'll check, uh, was it Maxwell and Einstein in their own way kind of proved Democritus from 2000 some odd years ago correct that the building blocks of the universe are all these basic indivis indivisible units, that that's how God or the processes of creation uh, made things to be, and that if sublimation and eros and the, the urge to be more than just these vehicles for physical forces, in our case biological ones, hunger, sex, violence, if we want to be more than that, well, on the one hand, Joe, and you said before that, that uh, stand-up comedy is very very much of a capitalist creation or, or a capitalist thing. What I was thinking then is that ideally stand-up comedy, entertainers in general, but the storytellers, the ones who get a story across by making people laugh and relate to it, um, uh, that these people are part of a tradition that goes back to the beginning of culture, you know, the telling of stories around the fire, uh, that, that both unites a community, but also tells people, hey, here's what happened in the hunt today. And while I'm at it, let me sing a little song. Um, 
Now, if you take this tradition of storytelling as a way of unifying a community, of helping people connect to one another and relate to one another and share their understanding, and you subject it to a capitalist machine in which every comedian is just another unit competing for its, its, its moment on stage, ready to be destroyed and discarded, um, in, in which you know, the, the value of an entertainer is determined by you know, uh, w what his or her performance does for the bottom line of the, you know, the production group or whatever then you have the capitalist forces that, that decimate, that atomize all the things that are unique about people, destroying that connection to the tradition of storytellers, that comedians and entertainers are nothing but deliverers of pleasure in the moment, with mm -hmm. nothing that goes beyond that. But that is a symptom of the cultural context, not the tradition. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, that's interesting. If you think of stand-up as like completely its own thing, then yeah, it's a capitalist creation. But if you tie it into, um, this storytelling tradition, which, yeah, I'm, you know, it's like anything else in culture, it's inseparable from what came before it and alongside it. Um, yeah, the, I, I think, um, uh, I think that's a good point. And yeah, I was, I was thinking this before, um, but I think, yeah, like ideally, uh, no, no art would really be a job because it wouldn't have to be <laughs> like, it would just be something people did, uh, you know, for, uh, recreation or as a hobby. And if other people enjoyed what you, yeah. created, great, but it's like, you don't need it to pay the rent. So you don't have to you know, guide, like, you know, uh, guided along those lines, like, this is what Comedy Central will pay me for, so this is what I'm going to say, or whatever. Ah, but like a measure of good society could be that the artists are the, the fine grain of it all, right? I don't know which philosopher had it that way, but I'm sure there are the ones that spoke of the, the poet and the writers and the painters and the musicians as the vanguards of the highest kind of cultural sophistication. So, you know, one could definitely argue that the way we have it is completely mixed up. It should be the other way around that, you know, artists should be paid to lead the way towards those images that guide us to beauty um, in a way and not exploited for, for mass, uh, mass tweets or, or mass producible memes or whatever it's called. Um, fragments you can sell. Yeah, exactly. But in terms of like trying to wrap up a little bit, I guess my attempt at hypothesis here would be something along the lines that these different versions of, of the image and the hallucination and the vision and the pictogram um, are very important kind of doorways in different respects to, to go towards that Einsteinian Sagan point where where the, the science, the the... the the fundamentals can become beauty. So there is an addition, there is a build on, there is an add on to our fundamental constitution in which we become larger, wider, we are expanding uh, and become richer in a way. And that the image or 
the vision can be one important doorway to step into that kind of mode of of being if done properly let's say if utilized correctly the the vision can be an instrumental tool to help us go further in that direction um i don't know it's, a, it's absolutely it's a, beautiful yeah, that was a really good way to to tie together you know the um the first you know uh big chunk of this episode that i was having a hard time <laughs> wrapping my head around um because yeah it's i think that's it's true it's like um the same way like a like an ayahuasca trip shouldn't be a a tourist destination the way it is now yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. like that yeah. or ex for like experiencing these things excuse me i didn't get to meet the goddess <laughs> mm -hmm. Do I get my go money the, back? Yeah, you can go in line B and take a <laughs> from the blue machine. <laughs> the goddess speaks to those she wants to speak to. I am afraid that wasn't you. <laughs> yeah, that's why you don't have the key to the lock, you damn yeah. artist. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting point that art um, serves that same purpose and should be treated as such. <laughs> Yes, and one little last piece of thread to tie it. Um, science, all the priorities of a culture, everything that is going to enable it to thrive, to master its world, to build towards the future. Um, Einstein, Sagan, uh, Ptolemy, <laughs> I don't care who you're talking about here, they had to dream their myths. The Big Bang is a myth, okay? The uh, Grand Unified Theory, which we don't have entirely yet, quantum loop gravity and the periodic table, these are all myths, they're all stories. I'm not saying they're false. I'm saying that if there is a fundamental truth out there, a structure to the universe, the way to convey it is by telling a story about it. And the people who tell those stories well they have to be able to do the math. Um, otherwise, they're just, you know, they're journalists, which is fine in and of itself. But um, our most important ideas, the ones that will endure, become myths. And myths are the stories that organize reality and culture and the human experience across time, which is why we can tell the story of Democritus and Aristotle and Aquinas and Maxwell. It's on up through Tyson. Um, and I think that does tie together a lot of what we're doing here. We have to dream our reality, even the hard physics of it. Mm -hmm. Isn't it so that Einstein is known for having his kind of thought experiments that one can speak of almost as dreams or, you know, hallucinations maybe in some form like he came up with this you know previously completely unthought of views of how things should be and then he tested them and he found out that it was indeed so so i mean that's that's a dreaming of a reality in one sense par, ex par excellence you know par excellence uh yeah. michael faraday um was a bookbinder. He was a poor man who had no mathematical ability whatsoever, but he dreamt, he imagined the lines of force permeating the universe and 
how they would interact. And then Maxwell came along and came up with the math that proved Faraday was right in pretty much every respect. But it began with the dreaming. It yeah. took a mathematician to translate it for other mathematicians. We are the dreamers. We are the dreamers. And I guess yeah, it's not so I, bad that I can't do math. <laughs> I was just it. reminded of of the article you sent, Martin, because uh, I do remember seeing the title and thinking, like, I've read things like this before. Um, which then the title was A Guide to Why Your World is a Hallucination. <laughs> and... Uh, I remember coming across this through, um, uh, well, this in itself, I'm not sure, but it, but yeah, it was, it's that like your, your brain, like, you know, we can explain all of this just like very basically scientifically that like your brain does this and that, and your eyes work mm -hmm. this way. That, that's like how you see the world. And it's like, well, that's not like some kind of universal truth that's how we see the world that's that is a form of hallucination um and uh that was uh yeah sort of related to what i what um i came across something that um stephen hawking said uh about meaning and this was something that i i struggled with a lot when i was younger like i i you know had depression and, and just struggled with this whole, like, I, like, I, I, you know, had a hard time with school, with like having jobs with everything. And I was like, why, like, why is any of this happening? Why do I have to work so hard just to have a, a life that I'm, <laughs> that, that is not that, uh, that um, uh, enjoyable to me. And what does anything mean anyway? And the way Stephen Hawking explained this was, uh, that meaning is just part of that hallucination that we have. Like that's, it's uh. no more or less real than anything else. So like, yeah, your, your eyes work the way they work. Birds have different eyes. They work differently, <laughs> you know, like it's a different thing for them, but like, yeah, but meaning is technically something we made up, but that if, it's either it it all it's all real or none of it. <laughs> it's, uh, and there's that intermediate ground though, Joe, which is that the meaning can be shared. The story holds up, or else mm. we toss it and get a better one. And right. we can tell somebody from another part of the world with a totally different frame of reference our story, and they probably have something analogous to it. Yeah. It's archetypal, meaning that the meaning is built into the capacities of the human mind. Right. Yeah. The only and thing that changes is the costumes and the, the, the particulars, but the, the yeah. structure, same story. Pyramids. <laughs> and I think it's, it's important what you, what you touched there that the sharing makes the meaning come alive, right? You can, you can have a meaning in your own house late at night that is firstly when you come through to other people and they can relate to it, they can share it, they can feedback on it, uh, they laugh at your jokes, they they show you that they understand your meaning has entered into the universe, you know, entered into an intersubjective relationship with others. And and that's when the meaning kind of gains a, a higher meaning, you know, the meaning becomes meaningful in a way. 
So I think that's an important point you make there, Dan, that it's some part of what we're talking about, although it hasn't been at the front in this episode, definitely relates to how we are with each other and the, the, the way we make each other come alive by being with and, and witnessing and sharing in together. Um, that is a hell of a dream. Yeah. <laughs> it works right. sometimes too. <laughs> Thank you yeah. guys. It's about bedtime here. So it's about time for me and go and dream. See if I play another piano concert tonight. All right. Well, we'll try to record this one. <laughs> yeah. All right. Guys, Joe, Martin, see you next week. All right. Have a good Bye, evening. Bye, folks. Bye-bye.